Our great God and our Father, we thank you for the life of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for these incredibly important lessons that we will get through tonight. And we ask that you would teach us uh, more than ever how we can understand this and apply it to our lives and then, most importantly, use this information to help others. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you would take the map that we've given you out of the, uh, out of the harmony, we're going to do a quick walkthrough of the life of Christ, and then we're going to put a couple of new events in that we're going to focus on tonight. And the life of Christ starts in what city? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Meredith, you're going to be Bethlehem. Okay, wave to me. Okay, Bethlehem, and we have the birth. Here we go, Bethlehem, birth, and then where? Egypt, we call it the what? Flight, when Jesus is about two, and then he comes home to where? Nazareth, and he becomes a what? Carpenter till he's about 30. He comes down into the Jordan River where he is baptized by John, out into the wilderness where he's what? Tempted by Satan, and then he goes three first. Perea, he calls his first followers, takes them to the wedding at Cana. He does his first miracle, which is what? Water into wine. And then he goes to Jerusalem for the first cleansing and tells Nicodemus about the second birth. And then he comes north to the city of Sychar and he meets the woman at the well and her name is where is Sandra tonight? I I saw her this morning. Okay. Sychar woman at the well. And then he comes all the way north to Nazareth. He claims to be the Messiah. They try to throw him off the cliff that's called rejection. So he has to find a new home. That's new home is what? Capernaum. And in Capernaum we saw last time he begins to demonstrate his authority. Say authority. Authority is followed by conflict with the religious leaders, okay? And we call that conflict a spat. Say spat. Spat. How do you spell it? S-P-A-T. And the first two S's we did last week, Jesus looked out into the multitude, and he did the S selection of the 12, and then he preached his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. You with me? Let's do that from start to finish, starting with Bethlehem birth. Go. Bethlehem birth, Egypt flight. Nazareth, Carpenter, Jordan River, come on, baptized by John, Wilderness, tempted by Satan, Perea, first followers, Cana, first miracle, Jerusalem, first cleansing, second birth, Sychar, woman at the well, Nazareth, rejection, Capernaum, authority, conflict, and we call it a spat. First S, selection of the twelve, followed by the Sermon on the Mount. Now tonight we're going to get into the two P's. The Jewish leaders are going to come to a point where they decide that Jesus is not valid as the Messiah. And they're going to say, Jesus, you get your power, okay, from Satan. Okay, he's accused of being from Satan. We're going to say power over Satan because it's a little easier to remember. And then the second hour tonight, we're going to deal with the parables. The parables are going to start, and a parable is going to do two things. It's going to hide the truth from those who reject Jesus and give more truth to those who are his followers. So we have two S's and two P's. What are they? Selection of the Twelve, Sermon on the Mount, Power over Satan, and the Parables Start. Tell those four things to the person sitting next to you. Go. Selection of the Twelve. Very good. If you turn in your harmonies, please, to paragraph 60, we're going to find Roman numeral 3, the rejection, capital letter A, of the herald. And remember, what happens to the herald will happen to the king. Let's do it out of the Luke passage. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples informed him about all these things. Now, all these things is that Jesus was sending out the twelve. The last time we were together, 
in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the twelve, and they were having quite a ministry. And now, in the meantime, John finds himself in prison. In fact, the Matthew account says, when John heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done, he sent his disciples to ask a question. 11.3 of Matthew, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Same question, John 7, um, Luke 7.19. And he sent them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Here's John, the herald of the king, and he's where? In prison. And again, what happens to the herald will happen to the king. And John is not expecting Jesus to end up in prison. In fact, he's expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom. And so John's question is a simple one. If you're the king, what am I doing stuck here in prison? It makes no sense to John. When the men came to Jesus, Luke 7, 20, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of the diseases and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So we answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Notice, what you have seen and heard. The words are backed up by his works. And here they are. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, are taking offense at John, and because of their offense, they've, take, they've put John in prison. Uh, Jesus defends John. It was a good question, John. Don't think that John is any less a man because of the question, are you the Christ? Or why am I in prison? And so he defends John, verse 24 of Luke 7. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. John, first of all, I'm going to make five points here, is not wishy-washy. John is not blown and tossed by the wave of popular opinion. John says, hey, this is the deal. I'm preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. When Jesus shows up, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second, verse 25, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? Answer, no. Look, those who wear fancy clothes and live in luxury are where? In the king's courts. John's not in it for the money. Third, what did you go out to see? Verse 26, a prophet? Yes. That's the third response. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus says not only is John a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's the fulfillment of the Malachi passage. This is the one about whom it is written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So those are the first four things about John. He's not wishy-washy. He's not in it for the money. He is a prophet. And he's the voice, the messenger, preparing the way for Christ. And then fifth, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Think about that. Now, who, who is included in all those born of women? Everybody. So compared to everyone who's ever been born, John is the greatest. There's no one greater than John. But, Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And that's because we have greater blessings than John. John, as an Old Testament saint, had certain blessings, but we as New Testament saints, we have the whole Bible, we've got the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've got the gifts of the Spirit, and so forth. We have a personal relationship with the Messiah that John could not have had in the Old Testament era. So we have greater blessings than John. Now verse 29. Now all, this is a parenthesis, now all the people, John's disciples, who heard this, even the tax collectors acknowledge God's justice 
because they had been baptized with John's baptism. However, and that should read but, the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. And again, to be baptized by John was to be identified with his back-to-God movement preparing the way for the Messiah. If the Jews accept uh, John the Baptist, they're going to have to accept Jesus. And they don't accept J- John, and they don't accept Jesus. So Jesus says, then says, To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And put a circle around this generation. It's going to come up several times tonight. To what shall I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another, We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in mourning, yet you did not weep. In other words, they're like selfish children. Somebody's playing for them, and they won't play. And the the religious leaders are behaving here like children, Jesus says. 4 verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say what? He has a demon. Remember what happens to the herald will happen to the king. And then he says, verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say what? Look at him, a glutton and a drunk and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Skip over back to the Matthew account. It says, but wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You can look at a person and the deeds of their life will manifest who they are. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, are are, are now complicit in trying to put Jesus to death. They're meeting with other groups. They're trying to assassinate a perfectly innocent man. And Jesus is saying they're like spoiled children. Just look at the deeds that they're doing and you'll have the result. So why is John the Baptist rejected? Well, the reason that they give is because John didn't do it the Pharisees' way. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He didn't eat their diet. He didn't do what they did. He didn't operate within the Levitical system. But the excuse is he is demon-possessed, and that ultimately will happen to Jesus. Now, in the Matthew account, there's some great verses that are very, very hard. And I never take these verses lightly. But Jesus now... Paragraph 61 is going to condemn the Jewish people for their lack of faith in him. Matthew 11:20. then Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles because they did not repent. The word many in the NIV, and I like this translation better, is the word most. Think about that. Jesus is going to condemn the cities in which he did most of his miracles. We're going to find three such cities in this list. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, in verse 23, and you, Capernaum. Now, we know a couple of things he did in Capernaum. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed the man that came down through the roof. But think about this. What did he do in Chorazin? What did he do in Bethsaida? What else did he do in Capernaum? We don't know. And I think it's pretty amazing that, you know, we only have about 40 miracles that Jesus did in all four of the Gospels. Most of what he did is not recorded for us. And yet these cities who saw him firsthand are judged. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You'll be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done among you had been done in Sodom, Sodom, it would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for the region of Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. 
And when it comes to judgment, there are three things. Number one, God generally withholds judgment until a future time. I am thankful for that. I am glad that God does not execute judgment in my life when I deserve it. God puts it off, and he's patient throughout the scriptures. He waits until the times are complete for judgment to happen. Second, there are degrees of judgment, and I don't understand all of this, but last week we mentioned rewards. Just as there are degrees of rewards or the ability to enjoy and anticipate and be fulfilled in heaven, there are degrees of judgment in heaven based upon the degree of information that you got. And then third, it's all based upon how much you know. And Jesus walked into these cities. Now, I've been to these cities, and I want you to understand, it's, it's a mess. When you get to these cities, you can see them here on the map. They're all what's called the evangelism triangle. They're within a mile of each other. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin is just north of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is right next to it. And Bethsaida is around the corner here. Now, actually, that's Bethsaida. Chorazin's back here, and Capernaum's here. You can check it out on your map in, in the back of your Bible or your Harmony. That's where Jesus does most of his miracles. You can go up on these cliffs over here, which I love to do when I go to Israel, and you can see all of these cities just laid out before you. And here's what they look like today. That's Chorazin. It's a mess. There's just not much there. There is a synagogue there, and they've discovered a place they call the Seat of Moses, which we'll come back to in Matthew chapter 23. But it's a mess. The one time I went to Bethsaida... Uh, it was like that, and the guide kept saying, look out for snakes, look out for snakes. They've never rebuilt Chorazin, they've never rebuilt Bethsaida, and they've not ever rebuilt Capernaum. There is a, uh, uh, what's the word, convent at the site of Capernaum, and there is a big Catholic church built there over this. This is actually one of the cool things at Capernaum. This is the remains of what probably is the house where uh, Peter lived. This is a church going all the way back to the second century built over a small structure that would have been a typical house. And in church history, that was traditionally where Peter lived. And now they've taken this ginormous church and they built it over top, so you could never see it like that anymore. But that's how it was the first time I got to go to Israel. But all these cities are condemned because they had Christ there in the flesh. And what did they do? They ignored him, they rejected him, and they would not repent. To repent means to change your mind. And they did not change their mind about who... Jesus was. Now, in light of the judgment, Jesus gives a wonderful invitation. If you skip to the next paragraph, paragraph 62, this is why they don't believe. In Matthew, actually we're still in, in, in uh, 61, Matthew 11:25. at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son decides to reveal him. Now, if you're Presbyterian, that's your verse. That's the verse that says, you know, no one comes to the Father except the Father draws him. That's a predestination verse. But in the very next verse, you got the Methodists. You know, and here's the, here's the invitation that I was talking about. Come unto me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So the question is, does God draw people to himself, or are people responsible to make a decision to come to Jesus? And the answer to that question is, yes. And I don't understand it any more deeply than that. I have people who agonize over this. Is God totally sovereign over the universe? Absolutely. Am I completely responsible? Do I have free will and have to live with the choices I make? 
Absolutely. Well, how do you put all that together? I just don't. There are things in the Scripture we call antinomies. An antinomy is against the law, antinomos. It's against the laws of logic to believe that God is sovereign and I'm responsible. And so in heaven, I'll be one of those guys that has the flat forehead. As soon as you get through the gate of heaven, you'll just go, of course that's how it works. I just don't spend any more time on it than that. You may, you may land in one camp or the other, and God bless you. But the invitation, regardless of God's sovereignty, is take my yoke. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is inviting the people to come and adopt his approach to the kingdom. And the other approach out there is the Pharisees' approach. And theirs is a heavy burden. We talked last week about the Talmud and the Mishnah, 1,500 Sabbath laws, a huge encyclopedia Britannica full of full of tradition that you load on the people's backs and say, this is how you walk with God, all these regulations. And Jesus said, that's one way. Here's my way. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for my way is easy and my burden is light. You know, imagine being an accountant. Anybody here an accountant? God bless you. You know, how big is the tax code? And they had bigger than a tax code for their life. They got up in the morning saying, how can I screw this up today? And Jesus says, no, no, there's, a, there's another way. Uh, early in my trips to the Middle East, I, I went to Egypt. And uh, if you ever get to go to Egypt, go. I wouldn't go with a big group right now because it's not the, not the safest place, but I'd still go. And I saw this incredibly beautiful ox with this little Egyptian who was out in the field who was, you know, 5'1 and 130 pounds tops. And the little Egyptian would say, go to the right, and the ox would turn, and go to the left, and the ox would turn left, and stop, and the ox... And I said, man, that's pretty amazing to get this little wire Egyptian guy to control this thousands of pounds of flesh. And so I asked my guide, you know, how do they do that? More importantly, how do you train an ox? And she said, here's what they do. They take a double yoke, see the picture? And they take that young animal, which is probably the smaller one here, and they put it in the yoke next to the larger animal. And the little farmer says, go to the right. And the old ox goes to the right. And the young ox is not interested, but he goes to the right because the other guy is bigger than him. Go to the left. And the old ox goes to the left. Stop. And the old ox stops. And as long as that young ox stays in the yoke with the older animal, soon they become one. They become linked. You can't tell one from the other. And that's what's great about Jesus. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll give you all these rules to follow. What does he say? Get in the yoke with me, walk next to me, and over time we'll know what the Father wants us to do. I just love the picture. I have a double yoke pin sometimes I wear it. It's just a reminder of how gracious the invitation is. Now, in the next paragraph is a lady who's been under the yoke of Pharisaism and apparently escapes. Luke 7, paragraph 62. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited or asked Jesus to have dinner with him. Now whenever you see that, there ought to be a red flag that goes up because they are not excited about Jesus' claims. They are, for the most part, trying to trick him. 
And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And when a woman of that town, who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought in an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair and kissed them and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Imagine having a dinner party. You've got the fine china out. You even have fine china. I, I love Jim Gaffigan. I just listened to him today. He did a thing on, on weddings and how stupid they are. He said, my wife decided we needed fine china in case the Pope came to eat. Well, Jesus came to eat. Okay. More important than the Pope. And in the Middle East, when a person comes to your house, you leave the door open so people from the neighborhood can not only see but can come in and give a greeting. And the woman shows up, brings an alabaster jar of very expensive oil, perfume, anoints the feet of Jesus, wipes them with her hair. How's that for a dinner party? That's the entertainment. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is and who was touching him that she is a sinner. Now I have a question. How did he know? So Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. Say 50. There you go. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, I love this. I just love this. Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? Think about that. Did did he have to ask that question? How could you not see this woman? She's pouring perfume, smelling up the house, crying and weeping and wiping his feet with her hair. He says, since I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. You know, in their culture, that was just the basic minimum you'd do when you had a guest. He doesn't even give Jesus the basic minimums of hospitality. And here's the point of the parable. I tell you her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Put a circle around that. But those who were at the table with him, probably other Pharisee friends, began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, they've got a reason now to, again, another accusation against Christ. He forgave the man that came down through the roof, claiming to be God. He claimed last week God with his father, claiming to be equal to God. And here again, Jesus never pulls punches with those Pharisees. Now, unfortunately, this woman in Luke 7.50 is confused with Luke 8.1. This is not Mary Magdalene, this immoral woman. Mary Magdalene gets a bad rap. She's, you know, in, in the rock opera back in the 60s, she was accused of being a hooker. She was not a hooker. She had other issues, and we find her in Luke 8, some time afterward, after he'd had dinner in this house. Sometime afterward, 
Jesus went on through towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And some, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now she had that working against her. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others provided for them out of their own resources. So the question is, Jesus ministers for three and a half years. He and his disciples are on the road pretty much full-time. How did they survive financially? This group, primarily these women, helped. And the cute thing to me is not only was Mary Magdalene involved in this, but someone who worked for Herod the king directly is helping support the ministry of Jesus. I just love the way God works all this out. Now, as that is our context, the goal of this session is to get to this event. And this is the event that becomes the climactic event in the life of Jesus. There's a before and an after to this event. Before this event, Jesus is going around to the nation and he's saying, I'm the king. I am God. I have the right to be here. I can do this. When he preaches his sermons, it's very clear, unless you're more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't get into heaven. After this event, he'll start teaching in parables. Before this event, he's giving himself away to Israel. After this event, he gives himself away to the twelve. Before this event, he primarily is, is dealing with uh, people that are healed, and he'll say, go, go show yourself to the priest. Remember Luke 5? After this event, exclusively, don't tell anybody. Before this event, when he heals somebody, it's for everybody to see. After this event, not only... Do the twelve get to see it? Sometimes not even the twelve. Sometimes just Peter and James and John witness the miracle. Because of paragraph 64. Paragraph 64 is the rejection of Christ and his offer by the leaders. We're going to study it from the Matthew account, but we'll skip in and out of Mark as well. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. It says, Then they brought to Jesus him, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, underlined blind and mute. Jesus healed him so that he could speak and see. Now there's no question that the man is possessed. There's no question that he's blind and there's no question that he's mute. This is one of the three big miracles that we talked about when we talked about the leper a couple of sessions ago. The three messianic signs that the Jewish leaders knew about but had never seen take place. So that when Jesus does one of these three miracles, everybody goes nuts. Now the crowd sees it, the disciples see it, the leaders see it, the man is healed. There's no question about that. No one doubts that. And the first thing that happens is verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Okay. That's the question. It's a messianic sign. The son of David, the Messiah, is the one you promised us would do this, O oh, Jewish leaders. And in the Greek language, there are two ways you ask a question. One is expecting a positive response. They might be saying here, this is the son of David, isn't it? But in in, in reality, they're saying, this wouldn't be the son of David, is it? Because you've already told us this guy's not a good guy. So the response of the Pharisees, verse 12, but when the Pharisees, remember Jesus had said in Matthew 5, 20, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Pharisees were in trouble here, Righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here they are. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
he and scratch out the word he because they don't even give Jesus credit for being a person. This is really what it is. Does not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So their interpretation of Jesus' miracle is not that he's not got supernatural power. Jesus has supernatural power, but they're saying, you're getting your power from Satan. In fact, we're going to use that instead. Jesus, you get your power from Satan. Say that with me. Power from Satan. Who's saying that? The Pharisees. About Jesus' miracle casting out the mute demon. Now, why is that a mute? Why is that a big deal? Here's why. In the Jewish world, they had exorcists, guys who would cast out demons. But most of the time, they used what is very similar to the Roman Catholic methodology. They would take the name of the demon. In another session soon, we're going to talk about this method. Jesus approaches the demons and said, What is your name? And the demon says, My name is Legion, for we are many. We'll get there. But the problem is this demon has made the man mute. So you cannot get the name of the demon. They would take the name of the demon and plug it into a rabbinical formula, and if God was gracious, the demon would leave. So the Pharisees said, when the Messiah comes, he'll do this. Jesus does it. And they attribute his power to Satan. Verse 25, now Jesus is going to defend himself against this capital offense. Now, when Jesus realized what they were thinking, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and no town or house divided against itself will stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? First defense, it doesn't make any sense for Satan to cast out Satan. He would be defeating himself. Second defense. And verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, Beelzebul is the prince of demons. We talked about him last week. By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they shall be your judges. In other words, if I got the power to cast out the demon, what power are your guys using? They're doing it. Third, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. Basically, if I'm doing this, I am who I say I am. I have the right to forgive sin. I have the right to create. I have authority over disease. I have authority over defilement. I have authority over demons. I have authority over death. I am, I am legitimate. And if I cast out this demon, it gives me legitimacy. And then verse 4. It doesn't make any sense what you're saying. If I, how else can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can thoroughly plunder the house? I've got to be stronger than Satan in order to do this. You with me? And that's his fourfold defense. Now he continues. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now who is not with him? The Pharisees. They're against him. They're scattering the Jewish sheep. For this reason I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he reiterates that. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I get calls more often than you would imagine saying, I think, or they'll sit with me and that I've committed a sin so bad that God could never forgive it. I've committed an unpardonable sin. 
my question is, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, clearly in this passage, the unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Spirit. So the question is, what is blasphemy against the Spirit? And I want you to get this, so I'm going to give it to you twice. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the rejection of Christ while he is present on the grounds that he is demon-possessed. I want to say that again. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the rejection of Jesus while he was present on the grounds that he was demon-possessed. That's what the Jewish leaders have done in that passage. Now, a couple of things that I think are very, very helpful because if you don't think you've ever committed an unpardonable sin, someone in your life will someday. First, this is a national sin committed by the leaders of the nation Israel. The representatives of the Sanhedrin have come to a conclusion this man gets his power from Satan. He gets his power from Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Second, individuals can escape the coming judgment. Jesus is now going to change his ministry away from the nation to individual Jews. And every individual Jew can still come to faith, right on up to and including the thief on the cross. But instead of coming as a member of the nation, now individuals come because of their personal need on the basis of personal faith. And third, and very important for you and for me, this sin cannot be repeated today. Woo-hoo! Out of here, woo-hoo! <laughs> because Jesus is not present. Wait a minute! Is there anything you can do today that's unpardonable? Yes, but it's not that. You can die without Jesus. Okay. First John 5 says there's actually such a thing for the believer as a sin unto death. doesn't mean we're going to hell. There's a sin a believer can commit that's so bad God takes us away. But we cannot accuse Jesus in the flesh of getting his power from Satan. You cannot commit this sin today. We are not members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And here's the deal. If you say that you have committed a sin that Jesus cannot forgive, you are saying, watch, you are saying that Jesus did not do enough up on the cross. And if you believe that there's a sin that's ever been committed that Jesus did not die for on the cross, I would lovingly but firmly declare you a heretic. When Jesus died on the cross, he said it is paid in full. It is finished. Every sin of mankind, past, present, and future, I have paid for by my death on the cross. Oh, well, I need that. So when people come to me and say, I've committed an unpardonable sin, I love to say, boy, I've got great news for you. Now, he gives an invitation here right in this middle of this passage, verse 33. Make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, choose me. My fruit's better than the Pharisees. And then he says to them lovingly, Offspring of vipers, how are you able to say anything good since you are evil? For the mouth speaks what fills from, the, from what fills the heart. The good person brings good things out of his good treasury, and the evil person brings evil things out of his treasury, so that I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. And what is the worthless word they speak? You're getting your power from Satan. And so he says, last verse, 37. For by, you words, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Because the Jewish nation commits this sin, as a nation they are judged, 
and from now on Jesus will treat them as in that judged condition as a nation. Now, I believe Israel has a great future. If you were here for our Revelation series, you realize that. But in 70 A.D., 40 years after this event, the Jewish nation is judged by God and put on the shelf for 1,900 years until they're brought back into the land in 1948 because of this unpardonable sin that was committed by that evil generation. And in closing, again, I just take you back to that wonderful picture of the yoke. Jesus says, come unto me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my way is light, my burden is light and my way is easy, and you will find rest for your soul. If you don't have that rest, that you know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died for you, that every sin you've ever committed or will commit has been paid for on the cross. Let me just give you that good news tonight. Father, thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for this incredible event that makes such a significant difference in the life of Christ and in the life of your people. And we ask that you continue to teach us as a result of this in his name. Amen.